I'm a warrior and an assassin. I do not dance. Really? Well, on my planet, there's a legend about people like you. It's called Footloose. And in it, a great hero named Kevin Bacon. He teaches an entire city full of people with sticks up their butts that dancing, well, it's the greatest thing there is. Who put the sticks up their butts? What? No, that's just a... That is cruel. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is my favorite dance partner, my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. You don't dance. Well, no, but if I were to dance, <laughs> it would be with you. Okay. I think you danced at our wedding once. Yeah, just, just the one time. That was enough. That's okay. all you get. Yeah. <laughs> at the top of the episode, we heard a clip from James Gunn's 2014 film Guardians of the Galaxy, in which Chris Pratt's Peter Quill teaches Zoe Saldana's Gamora about the legend of an Earth hero named Kevin Bacon, who taught a whole town how to dance. On today's episode, I'll share that legend with Nakia as she enjoys her first viewing of 1984's Footloose. I'm not looking forward to this at all. <laughs> I'm really not. But Nakia, first I want to talk about something that I will admit from the start I am woefully unqualified to discuss. Okay. Music. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) we'll, We'll talk a little later about the rather dubious place Footloose has in cinematic history, but certainly one of the explanations for its continued nostalgic hold on Generation X is its soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Entertainment Weekly, Footloose, with over 9 million copies sold, is the seventh best selling movie soundtrack of all time. After The Bodyguard, Purple Rain, yeah. Saturday Night Fever, Dirty Dancing, The Lion King, and Grease. The Lion King? Yeah, and a couple of those to me don't even count. Grease and The Lion King, those are musicals. Like, that sure. shouldn't even count. Sure. But okay. So you will, I have no doubt. <laughs> have opinions about the worthiness of the Footloose soundtrack to be included with such luminaries as Whitney Houston and Prince. Isn't it all Kenny Loggins or something? Uh, There's a good deal of Kenny Loggins, yes. So that should be an automatic disqualifier. (laughs) Okay, but let's stick a pin in that for a minute. (laughs) And just talk about movie soundtracks in general. Okay. And here, again, I think what we're talking about is not movie scores Mm -hmm. or movies that are explicitly musicals, Mm -hmm. but we're, we're talking about... The movies where you buy the soundtrack because it has a bunch of awesome pop songs on it. Right. So, have you ever bought a movie soundtrack? Do you own any movie soundtracks? Oh my god, I've I've bought many a movie soundtrack in in my day. You know, movie soundtracks are are really interesting things, right? Um, They could be sort of comprised of original songs that were written sort of specifically with the film in mind. Mm -hmm. A great example of that is the brilliant Superfly soundtrack by (laughs) Curtis Mayfield. I mean, honestly, like, I know you haven't seen Superfly. How do you know I haven't seen Superfly? You haven't seen Superfly. (laughs) And it is absolutely has earned its place in the sort of black exploitation film iconography or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that soundtrack on its own is wonderfully brilliant 
and Curtis Mayfield proves himself to be an amazing just composer and arranger. Um, Freddy's Dead and Pusher Man are two of the just most powerful songs like ever. Um, Pusher Man in particular is almost like a novel yeah, in a song. I, I do know that song. And just perfectly encapsulates this whole like first person narrative, you know, about drugs in the inner city. And it's just, it's beautiful and brilliant. So Superfly is one of my top all time movie soundtracks. Aren't we getting a remake of Superfly soon? Didn't I see a commercial yeah, for that? Yeah, I think, um, is it the, the kid who's in um, Grownish? I think it's him. As Superfly, I think. Okay. I feel like I've seen a commercial before, but I haven't gotten into it. But anyway, no matter what, nobody's going to touch Curtis Mayfield. <laughs> okay? Um, okay. Then there are those soundtracks that are like, somebody made you the perfect mixtape. Right. They are just wonderfully curated pieces of art. So, you know, in spite of my many problems with his filmmaking, uh, Quentin Tarantino is brilliant at it. Pulp Fiction... Um, the Grindhouse, like the, those, was it two movies? The two Grindhouse movies? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Um, the Kill Bill series. He's an excellent, excellent curator. Yeah. Um, there are just moments from Tarantino films right. that you can't separate from Separate the music, the music from it. Um, um, the opening credits of Kill Bill, yeah. to Nancy Sinatra's Bang Bang. Yeah. Is fantastic. Um, I think the Uma Thurman scenes, all of the Uma Thurman scenes in Pulp Fiction Mm -hmm. with Son of a Preacher Man and uh, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. Yes. um, Those are great. And I actually read that he he knew he was going to score the torture scene in Reservoir Dogs to Stuck in the Middle with You uh-huh. in the audition phase. Oh, wow. So he was auditioning actors to that piece of music. <laughs> That's how early that was decided that that was essential to that scene. There's a scene in um, Death Proof where... Uh, the original three girls go to like this divey bar and they start playing music on this jukebox. And um, Sidney Poitier's character... The, his daughter, not Sydney yes. um, goes to play this song. I think it's called "Baby, It's You," um, and she does sort of a dance near the, uh-huh. the 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 jukebox, and it's just a perfectly wonderful. And it's it's you know exploitative in in that way that Tarantino tends to like linger over <laughs> well, female yes, bodies course. for too long. Um, but it's it is a it's a great scene and a great use of a song um, in that particular moment. Another excellent curator is Cameron Crowe. Yes. Um, you know, he makes really great films and he makes really terrible films, Elizabethtown. But they all <laughs> tend to have really excellent soundtracks. Then there are soundtracks. And especially Almost Famous. And that's, I mean, like, that's, that's almost a subcategory of this category, which is movies about music. Right. Where the music plays such a huge role. Like High Fidelity is like that, yes, too. Yes, High Fidelity where is Where everybody like that. in the film is obsessed with music. Right. So music becomes such an important part. I, would, I actually wonder if like sales of Tiny Dancer, downloads of Tiny Dancer. Oh, almost, almost certainly. <laughs> everybody sort of loves that scene. Um, and so, you know, there are movies like, uh, High Fidelity and Almost Famous where the music is sort of, it's part of the story. It's yeah. right. And so Baby Driver is a recent example of that where the music yeah. is sort of integral. Edgar Wright is just another fantastic story. curator right. of music. And that was kind of the movie he'd been building towards his entire career. Right. Right. So, you know, it, the soundtrack plays a really, really important role because it you use those songs and the sort of nostalgia around them or the feeling that they create to bring your audiences to a certain point where you're trying to get them in this particular moment. Um, but it's a delicate balance, right? Because you don't want the song to have to do all of the work for you. You know, another one of my all-time favorites 
is the Harder They Come soundtrack. Jimmy Cliff mm-hmm. was a star of the film, and he did some songs on the, on the record as well. But it's a perfect almost like reggae mixtape. Um, you got the Maytals, you know, you got Rivers of Babylon, Many Rivers to Cross. Wonderful, perfect album. Then there are the albums that are good because they sort of introduce you to songs that you maybe wouldn't have found on your own. Um, so a good example of that for me would be Romeo and Juliet, because I think that may have been where I first... The Baz Luhrmann version? Yes. Because <laughs> it's such a mix of weird music of sort of disparate genres. Because okay. you had Radiohead on there, you had the Cardigans on there, you had Des Reed on there. So there were all these musics from all these different genres on this one album. And it's a perfect sort of um, sampler of like... I know Desri, but I was, I'm not necessarily familiar with Radiohead, though that wasn't the case. But So now I love Radiohead. Um, okay. So I think soundtracks can be really good for that. It can introduce you to something that you didn't know that you would actually enjoy. Another really good example of that <laughs> is the Old Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack, which I actually yeah. really love. <laughs> I know you're not a huge fan of the film. No, I don't hate the film. It's But... That soundtrack, like, I would just never listen no, to it. No, I think that was a best-selling right, soundtrack, too. Right, it was. Too. Yeah. But it's, like, bluegrass and yeah. gospel and all the, this sort of really great music that I would not have necessarily come to on my own. Right. Um, thanks to the great T-Bone Burnett. So, well, yeah. Inside Lewin Davis did that, exactly. too. With folk music. Right. Waiting to Exhale was another big soundtrack for me. I remember playing that one and The Bodyguard to death. <laughs> Um, not coincidentally, both of them, you know, featured Whitney Houston. Um, but Waiting to Exhale had, I mean, it was babyface, so it was going to be wonderful. You know, you had Exhale, you had Brandy sitting up in my room, you had Mary J. Blige's, you know, Black Woman Pain anthem, Not Gonna Cry. It was a perfectly wonderful soundtrack that I think still stands. Um, and then the bodyguard, of course, the I will always love you. Mm-hmm. But then it also had these really great sort of women anthems of like I'm Every Woman and Queen of the Night. Um, so those were two great ones. That, that is the best selling movie soundtrack of all time. You know, it was a pop culture moment in a way that very few sort of soundtracks get to. And number two was Purple Rain, which is why I can't I can't believe you haven't mentioned Prince. Okay, yet. because and this may be a controversial moment. Okay, if I were to pick sort of soundtracks. I don't know that I would pick Purple Rain. I think I would pick Under the Cherry Moon. But the soundtrack is not okay. called Under the Cherry Moon. It's called Parade. I told you before we started this conversation I could get one Prince. that you were allowed one <laughs> Prince album. So if I'm allowed one Prince album, I'm probably picking Parade, okay. which was the album that went with Under the Cherry Moon. Okay. Um, because you had Girls and Boys. That's where Kiss is. Mm-hmm. Um, another Lover, Hole in Your Head. Sometimes It Snows in April. Like Parade just has some just perfect print songs on it now were any of those actually movie soundtracks or were they albums to which he then added a movie no they were actually movie soundtracks yes Mm -hmm. the movie purple rain did not come before the album purple rain did it i think they were done in tandem right okay because those movies seem to me more like the beatles movies where it's like we start with the music and Mm -hmm. then we just kind of make a movie around it then there are some Soundtracks where I don't necessarily love the soundtrack in its entirety, but it introduced me to a song that I still love. So Dance With Me, which stars Vanessa Williams, Chris Christopherson, and Cheyenne, um, is not a great movie. I mean, it's a fine movie, but it's not anything I would recommend to yeah, anyone. Yeah, I don't know that one. But, <laughs> but it has a song, um, Patria on it, by Ruben Blades, and I love it, and I still love it. 
And then um, from the Talk to Her soundtrack, I fell in love with um, Kukurukuku Paloma. Um, what was that again? Which means Cuckoo Dove. Uh, <laughs> what was the title of the song again? And it's also featured on the Moonlight soundtrack, and it's just a really beautiful sort of melancholic love song. I didn't catch the name. Kukurukuku Paloma, which I'm sure I'm butchering. <laughs> So yeah, so I don't necessarily love those soundtracks in total, mm-hmm. but those particular songs have have stuck with me for a very long time. So yeah, those are like some of my top. I mean, I could go on. Boomerang yes, I, I know you has could a great um, soundtrack. That's a great like R and B '90s R and B sort of New Jack Swing groove. It was sort of what introduced Tony Braxton to the world. Um, so for that alone, it deserves an honor. Yeah, I love soundtracks. You'd be happy if this entire podcast was just talking I, if we, about music. If you want to just sit and talk about music, <laughs> I will happily do that and not watch Footloose. Harold and Maude, you know how you feel about okay, that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a soundtrack with an asterisk, man, because fuck Cat Stevens for all eternity. But you can't think of Harold and Maude without thinking about Cat right, Stevens. Right, which is why I can't watch Harold and Maude anymore. <laughs> Okay. There's no forgiveness for Cat Stevens. Okay. I know you are not a big music lover, but have there been soundtracks that have, you know, meant something to you? I was trying to think if I've actually bought soundtracks, because I'm not a big music guy. No. Um, so, and I, I don't think I've bought any music at all in the past 30 years. So let's, Which I you can't know, even fathom that. I'm pretty sure I owned the Big Chill soundtrack. Of course Like you did. a lot of people did. You're a middle-aged white that guy. That is, you know, the classic <laughs> white people, black music <laughs> soundtrack. Uh, just, it's a great soundtrack, it is though. A good it's soundtrack. The Temptations and The Four Tops and Percy Sledge and Aretha. It's a great soundtrack. It is. I think at one point I had, probably on vinyl, the American Graffiti soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Which is, you haven't seen that movie. That's on our list. We'll watch that one of these days. But it takes place on like the last night of summer vacation. And all all they're doing is driving around the city Mm -hmm. in Modesto, California. And they're all listening to the radio to Wolfman Jack's show. And so I think that soundtrack has like 41 songs on it. Oh, wow. Okay. And it's like all just classic rock and roll Mm doo-wop, you know, 50s era music. You know, Buddy Holly and Bill Haley and the Beach Boys and the Platters. It's just like all those classics. So those are all, those are both very obvious choices. (laughs) You already mentioned some of my favorites. I think Baby Driver is Mm -hmm. definitely a great soundtrack. Tarantino has just incredible music moments in his films. Cliff Martinez's soundtrack for Drive Mm. was a great soundtrack. Mm -hmm. That's another one that introduced me to music that I would not have necessarily found on my own. Um, Kavinsky's Night Call is just a beautiful song. I love that song. And then there are always like just moments, not necessarily the entire soundtrack, but just musical moments in films that can make you fall in love with a song that you would not necessarily have fallen in love Mm -hmm. with. Like, who knew how much I love Kenny Rogers? I just stopped in to see what condition my condition was in (laughs) until the Big Lebowski used it. 
And now I just love that song. Mm-hmm. Because of that moment in the film. Because of that moment in the film. Let me ask you this. Uh-huh. Did you fall in love with Public Enemies Fight the Power after you saw Rosie Perez dance super hard to it in the opening to do the right thing? Of course. <laughs> that is another song that it's like that movie practically owns that song. Like you can't hear that song and not think of that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to think of a deep poll, and here's uh, there's another movie I'm not sure you've seen, but Bernardo Bertolucci is another great music curator in his films and stealing beauty the Liv tyler oh yeah i have movie, seen parts has of that a fantastic soundtrack yeah. in it. it's nina simone and billy holiday mm. um it makes great use of stevie wonder's superstition mm. like that's just a great soundtrack so say for stevie wonder you like dead black people in your soundtracks i i pretty much like dead musicians <laughs> in, in my soundtracks <laughs> Like, I'm not, it's not, and it's not even the music from my generation, because I'm right. not that old. Right. It's like people who were right. <laughs> pretty much dead by the time I discovered them. <laughs> but yes, I am an oldies guy. And this is the other thing, when you think about these, there are a lot of movies where the use of music is memorable and iconic, and a song is strongly associated with the movie, but it has to be a good song. Yeah, oh, of course. Like, you know... Sure, I guess Celine Dion is associated with Titanic, <laughs> but who the hell wants to listen to Celine Dion? A lot of people. No. A lot of people. No. A lot of people really love Celine. She won that record sold like ridiculously well, and she is still, I think she's still doing her residency in Las Vegas that sells out almost every, like, people will die for Celine. <laughs> Their heart will go on. <laughs> that would be an interesting question, though, is if... If you've grown, if there was a song that you love that you then hate because it was associated with a certain film or a certain sort of oh, pop I'm culture sure, I'm moment. I'm sure there are examples that of was, that. You know, so just oversaturated. You just like, I can't, I, I used to love that song and I can't even listen to it to it. Well, I mean, there are, there are songs that are just horribly overused. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right. <laughs> Both the Leonard Cohen version and the Jeff Buckley mm-hmm. version of that song. There needs to be a moratorium <laughs> where no one can use that for like 10 years, <laughs> including in award show moratoriums. <laughs> um, you know, Buffalo Springfield's, for what it's worth, mm. is so overused. Um, yeah, there are a lot of songs <laughs> like that, where it's just like, you you didn't even try to right. think of anything more interesting to hear right. here. You just, you know, picked the most obvious on-the-nose choice right. to plug in here. So I came, I had, I was like, in my teenage years. In my teenage years, music videos were sort of still a thing. I mean, they are. I guess they are still now. Are they still a thing? I don't I know. I think people do, like, music films now. So, you have Beyonce and, you know, Janelle Monae do these sort of movie lanes. <laughs> in my teenage years... Visual albums. Music videos were a brand new thing. Right. And I remember sitting there... I remember the first night MTV launched, sitting mm-hmm. there watching it and saying... This will never last. <laughs> Who the hell wants to sit around and watch music? But it did. I actually, And I think I was right about that. No, you weren't. Because for a long time, they were sort of amazing. And you would go the next day and be like, did you see that new music video? It was really blah, 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 blah. Like, you would actually talk about it. But anyway, the point being, there was a time when the music videos would incorporate scenes from the film. Yes. Yes. So that, <laughs> And in, usually in really sort of inorganic, corny ways. But some songs from soundtracks, I only know because some, I should say, some films I only know because I've seen clips of them in music videos. Okay. So, like, one, you know, big example is Eddie Murphy's um, Dr. Doolittle. Never saw it. (laughs) But 
Aaliyah's video for Are You That Somebody included like little clips from the film. One, it's a amazing, like seriously, just a, a wonderful, like just a great song. <laughs> I can't even tell you how much I still love that song. And it still sounds cool and modern if you listen to it today. But anyway, so that's a song that I really love from a soundtrack to a movie that I've never seen. I think that's probably the right amount of that movie to watch. <laughs> there are some great ones. Uh, Lucy Pearl did a video for the, their song Dance Tonight, which is also another just great song. Um, that one was from Love and Basketball. I actually did see Love and Basketball. It's a very good movie. I highly recommend it. But it also included like little clips from the from the from the movie. But yeah. So there are some I mean, soundtracks are just they're powerful things. <laughs> okay. Well, okay, so let's segue into talking about this movie. And I, I, talk and about I think you you with your love of soundtracks, I don't see how you're not going to enjoy this, you know rock power anthem in movie form. It's Kenny Loggins. Scored to Kenny Loggins and Sammy Hagar and Bonnie Tyler and Denise Williams. I mean, you're there's no way you're not going to love it. This soundtrack mm-hmm. knocked Michael Jackson's Thriller off the top of the charts in 1984. Everybody that made that choice. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know how long Thriller had been on the charts at that point, but this, be, I don't care. Everybody this soundtrack knocked thriller off the top of the charts everybody who made that choice made a grave <laughs> mistake and that's not i would argue that that's not even his best album but you still made the wrong choice and let's hear it for the boy is an annoying ass song i don't care it's like denise we love you but it's so annoying i hate that song i really hate that song boy a lot of folks are going to give you problems because you're an outsider you're dangerous you know, I'm trying to fit in here, and every door is getting slammed in my face. Just because he hasn't lived in this town for 20 years doesn't make him a troublemaker. Is there a law against loud music? Watch that attitude, boy. It's my fight, you know. It's for the town. It's not with one guy. Do you want to catch me? Someday. Footloose, rated PG. Okay, so wh- what do you actually know about Footloose? Uh, Kevin Bacon moves to some small town where dance is forbidden for some reason, <laughs> and his hips save them from themselves. I just, yeah. That's it? That's all you know? Is there anything else? Is Lithgow as like a, some sort of authoritarian preacher guy mm-hmm. who is yeah. outlaw dance yeah. because what, at least the sex? Is that what it is? <laughs> um, something with tractors? <laughs> that there is a scene with tractors, which I'm looking forward to watching with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so this was, oddly enough, based on a true story. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Oh, God. So, it was inspired by the small town of Elmore City, Oklahoma, which calls itself the Buckle on the Bible Belt. Oh, Jesus. It's a town of about 700 people. Probably a sundown town. And they had a law on the books for their first hundred years of existence that prohibited public dancing. Uh, the small high school in Elmore City, Oklahoma, did not have a senior prom for over 100 years until 1980, when some enterprising young people uh, managed to convince the town to allow them to have a senior prom. That town was probably listed in the Green Book. <laughs> You're going to have to explain what that is. <laughs> the Green Book <laughs> was a guide to help black people who were traveling across a very segregated yeah. America to Telling know them where to avoid hotels and restaurants and other businesses that would be amenable to their presence and ones that were going to be hostile. 
the entry for that town was just, nope. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm honestly at a bit of a loss to explain why you have to watch Footloose. But so I, just, I just somehow know that you do. I don't. In fact, several people, all my contemporaries in Generation X, people who were in junior high or high school when this movie came out, have asked me, has Nakia seen Footloose? And I have dutifully assured them that I would add Footloose to the list. Even though it is not a movie I particularly love or have fond memories of. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And this is a thing that happens with my generation. I mean, it's the other example I always use. Like, I don't know when we all decided The Goonies is a good movie. It's not a good movie. The Goonies is cute. It's really not. Say anybody needed to see The Goonies. Not everything we remember from our youths. is a classic. <laughs> Some of it is just shit. Um, so this is definitely one of those films that's more of a cultural phenomenon than a cinematic classic. I have not seen it since the 80s, so maybe I'm underselling it. Yeah. <laughs> er, the reviews were mediocre to terrible, yeah. quite honestly. Um, and I And I don't think there's been some sort of major critical reassessment in the intervening 35 years since this movie came out. In fact, Roger Ebert, when he reviewed, there was a remake of Footloose a couple of years ago that apparently was I do terrible remember that. nobody yeah. saw it. And I remember Ebert's review said something like, the lesson here is if you remake a bad movie faithfully, you get another bad movie. That's about right. So this was written by Dean Pitchford, who was not a screenwriter. He was primarily a songwriter. He wrote most of the music in the movie Fame, including the song Fame. Uh, It was directed by Herbert Ross, who I would describe as a journeyman director. (laughs) He's a solid but unremarkable director, not exactly an artistic visionary. He had done... He did a lot of, like, the Neil Simon movies, Goodbye Girl and California Suite. Uh, he did direct one movie that I love, which is The Last of Sheila. But, I, yeah, not not really a major artist. <laughs> Paramount apparently did originally hire a visionary director to make Footloose. Uh, Michael Cimino of the Deer Hunter fame and Heaven's Gate infamy. That was the famous bomb. Right expensive, over-budget bomb, Heaven's Gate. Uh, He was apparently the director on this film for about four months. He somehow thought it was going to be a musical comedy inspired by the Grapes of Wrath. I don't know what that was about. (laughs) That would have been awesome. (laughs) Um, But he apparently had, you know, more and more extravagant visions for it, and Paramount quickly saw another Heaven's Gate on the horizon and got rid of him and brought in uh, Herbert Ross. So there, somewhere there's a great lost film. I want to see that musical comedy Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> from Heaven's Gate director Michael Cimino. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, the premise alone is ridiculous. And Kevin Bacon would not be my choice. <laughs> For town savior for dance. So Kevin Bacon was apparently the at least fourth choice oh, for God. this role. That's not a good. Uh, Tom Cruise was going to do it, <laughs> and then he 
apparently went and made all the right moves instead. Mm -hmm. uh, Rob Lowe yep. was going to do it, and then he got injured. Mm -hmm. John Travolta apparently turned it down. And then Kevin Bacon, who Kevin Bacon was actually... He, Kevin Bacon turned down Christine, the Stephen King movie. Mistake. To do this Mistake. <laughs> not, not a mistake, <laughs> actually. Christine is terrible, but I even having that scene <laughs> footloose... <laughs> You should have gone ahead and done Christine. <laughs> and he auditioned for this role. They hired, The director wanted him right away. The writer wanted him. There was apparently one studio producer. He, he told this story to Conan O'Brien not too long ago. He said the studio thought he was unfuckable. That's an interesting... Okay, so... Okay, so you want to talk about this before we even watch the movie? Do we think... Is Kevin Bacon considered or ha was he considered a leading man along the lines of I Tom mean, Cruise? Uh, I wouldn't say along those lines. <laughs> okay. I don't think of him that way. Okay. And I don't think of him as a sex symbol, but maybe other people do. I don't know. I think people do, do find Kevin Bacon sexy. I feel like I've heard people talk about him as though, and maybe he's, maybe that's been something he's sort of aged into. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I do not. No. This, well, this might be the movie that convinces I you. I highly doubt it. Here's, if I were making this movie... <laughs> If you're going to send somebody to a white town that can't dance, you send Paula Abdul. Because she will be able to teach them how to dance, and she's not, you know, threatening in that black way. So that's what you do. And then that's an awesome movie. She teaches them the moves to, like, control or something from Janet Jackson, and it's awesome. Pauline Kael, in her review, not a fan, said, This will probably be the only rock musical ever made in which every single character is a white Protestant. Yeah, I don't want to watch this. I really don't. Bible Belt plus No Rhythm plus Kevin Bacon equals I Want to Pass. This is why you need integrated cities. If there was ever a reason, you know, a case for diversity. One, better food. Two, you can dance without embarrassing yourself. But this movie was a hit. It, uh... It was made for about $8 million. It made $80 million at the box office. It was the seventh highest grossing film of 1984... But this is the year in which Beverly Hills Cop, Ghostbusters, an Indiana Jones movie came out. Footloose made more money than Star Trek III, Revenge of the Nerds, and Purple Rain. Everybody made bad year. choices. <laughs> so what are, you, what are you expecting from this film? Trash. <laughs> Maybe you can go into it just sort of expecting it to be fun and silly. and. But it's not going to be. No? I don't think so. Okay. No, I'm just going to wonder how everybody got paid for that. <laughs> I'm going to wonder about all the movies that don't get made so we can spend $8 million on Footloose. It's not a lot of money, really. It's it's enough to get a, a decent independent film made or something about any, anything else <laughs> other than Footloose. It's enough to make my version with Paul Abdul. That's what you do. <laughs> Because this is, I don't even understand how this got made. You haven't even watched it yet. I don't, I, I don't care. I, I, no, I don't care. <laughs> Isn't like the, you know, the second pen in this movie too? <laughs> yes, Chris Penn. Yeah. The late Chris Penn. Oh God, is he dead? Yeah, a I'm bit. sorry then. <laughs> From what? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Does that matter? <laughs> Depend. That makes the difference in how bad I feel. <laughs> He is. A, I would say Chris Penn is actually, as he was in many movies, the best part of this movie. So. And to be fair, I don't like Sean Penn. So. <laughs> no. <please. laughs> 
what we can call Chris the superior pan. I have no problem with that. Yeah, I don't want to watch this. All right. Well, I, let's go watch it, if nothing else, to, you know, so you can have your hatred be justified and not just free-floating as it is now. I enjoy free-floating hatred. There's a lot of that going around, if you didn't notice. At least uh-huh. mine is, you know, benign for the most part. <laughs> I fucking hate Footloose and I haven't even seen it. And on that note, let's go watch it. <laughs> And Ecclesiastes assures us that there is a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to laugh and a time to weep. A time to mourn and there is a time to dance. There was a time for this law, but not anymore. See, this is our time to dance. Okay. During the break, Nakia and I watched Footloose. Nakia, what did you make of this fast-dancing, tractor-racing masterpiece? The soundtrack of a generation. I feel bad for that generation. (laughs) That's my generation. And I feel bad for your... Now I see why you don't actually like music. (laughs) And why I don't dance. Right, it all sort of... It's coming to... It's crystallizing. This has been an excellent experience, learning experience for me. Because I wouldn't like music or dancing after watching Footloose. I would write it off wholesale. Yeah, I checked out that music thing and that dancing thing, and there's nothing there. It's not for me. It's not there for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I understand. I understand. You know, I had the beauty of, you know, Prince and Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson. So, of course, I love music and I love dance. And you, you had Kevin Bacon and And Kenny Loggins and Chris Penn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like there should be a support group or something to sort of exercise all of that I think this is it. I think this is our therapy session. Should I just, like, smack you around a few times while we listen to some good music? Yeah, why don't you deliver me some hard truths? Okay, sure. Actually, I will say, I tried to teach you a dance once, and you mocked me, and I have vowed that I would never teach you any dance. I have no memory of that. You absolutely have a memory of it. It was very early in our relationship, and in fact, it should have been a red flag for me, and yet I persisted. Um, But yeah, so... Was that the electric? I think that was the electric slide. Yes, you asked me what the electric slide was, and I, like a fool, got up and showed you, and you just laughed. (laughs) How could I not? I mean, it's basically like, it is the, you know, it is the dance at every black gathering ever. So you have to respect it. And I feel like white people should like the electric slide because it comes with steps. Like it's, it should be, you can follow it. I don't do steps. (laughs) Um, yes. So I, yeah, uh, I did not like Footloose. (laughs) I did not enjoy Footloose at all. Why is that? Um, I didn't like the plot or the acting or the music. Yeah. Okay, so pretty much everything. Right. (laughs) What you did not enjoy about Footloose is everything. everything. Okay. Pretty much. Actually, I will take that back. Chris Penn was very endearing. I told you Chris Penn was the best part of the movie. Yes, he doesn't have a whole lot to do, but he is very endearing. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that's that's about all I can say for this film. Okay, you want to very quickly recount the plot for us? Sure. Those out there who need their memories refreshed. Or wiped. Um, (laughs) The film tells the story of a Chicago kid named Wren, our Kevin Bacon. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's what we know about Wren. He's a fan of Slaughterhouse-Five. He likes skinny ties and questionable haircuts. (laughs) 
<laughs> and our hero is going to save the town of Beaumont through dance. Because somebody has to. Because somebody has to. Uh, the town of Beaumont is led by Shaw Moore, Reverend, excuse me, Shaw Moore, who was played by John Lithgow and his sort of moral majority people. Yeah, those uh, people are scary. <laughs> and they have imposed a ban on rock and roll and dancing. Why, you ask? Why, Nikia? Because five years ago, the good <laughs> reverend's son was killed in a car accident after a night of dancing and rock and roll. So, of course, we must ban dancing and rock and roll. The, the fact that it was his son is kept as a reveal. It is so like a, late yeah. In the film. Yeah. Oh, he was also drinking, just but that apparently that's Some kids part. were killed. Yeah, some kids were killed. And then later we find out that it was yes, his the, son. The reverend's son, so, Yes. And this is actually an interesting point because, as I said when we began, this was based on a real town Mm -hmm. that had had a law in the books banning dancing for like a hundred years. Yeah. It was just sort of a fundamental fact of the town. Right. Whereas in this film, they make it, it's a relatively new new. thing. Right. And it's linked to this one very specific incident. Right. It's a reaction to this sort of infiltration of this bad influence among the children. Right. And I think that kind of changes the issue, but we'll talk about that later. But, okay. Okay, continue with your, your plot synopsis here. So problem number one. Okay. Other than Kevin Bacon's haircut, is that we as sane people know that rock and roll doesn't kill people. Repressive totalitarian regimes kill people. So Do we know that? We do know that. We have like a lot of fucking data on that one. <laughs> so <laughs> Really no question there. So, this being the totally predictable movie that it is, of course, Ren falls in love with the preacher's daughter, Ariel, played by Lori Singer. Yes. Who you find much hotter than I found. She um, was, I mean, she was reasonably hot in this film. You know, I didn't get it. Okay. Like most preacher's kids, Ariel's a rebel when her dad's not around. She uh, dates who I like to call toxic masculinity Chuck. <laughs> Otherwise known as Chuck. Otherwise known as Chuck, but we're going to call him Toxic Masculinity Chuck because that's exactly who he is. You were against Chuck as soon as he showed up in the the cowboy hat and the truck that had antlers Antlers on it because he is very clearly an asshole. This was not your kind of guy. No. He he did not have, but I think it was implied, a Confederate flag. Oh, he absolutely had a Confederate flag. Yeah. I didn't see that. Yeah. No, it was definitely there. It was there. Yeah, no, Toxic Masculinity truck, Chuck grows up to have an alcohol, a drinking problem, and beats his wife, which we know. He's already started right. on that part of right. it. Right, what I'm saying, he's going to get, like, that drunk, bloated look, and he's going <laughs> to beat his wife. Um, she paints her nails red in church. So, a whore. A whore. She wears mm-hmm. red cowboy boots. I mean, red is a very, you know, that that's basically the color whore. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> You know, she likes to play with her life a little bit. We, one of the, you know, first times we meet her, she's sort of straddling two vehicles as a semi is barreling towards them. Yeah, she's a sort of stunt woman. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. You mentioned death proof earlier in the (laughs) conversation. She has a little bit of that. She would have fit right in with those women. Yeah. And, you know, later in the film... She stands in front of an oncoming train and screams out into the void. Uh So she has a lot of shit that she probably needs to work on. Yeah. And and sort of deal with, you know, outside of the church. That's that's all safer and less problematic than 
having sex with Chuck in the woods. She should never have sex with toxic masculinity, yeah. Chuck, mm-hmm. because he is disgusting. <laughs> and the other thing that we learn about Ariel um, from our good friend Willard, who was played by Chris Penn, uh, is that she's been, quote-unquote, kissed a lot. Yes, kissed a lot. Yes. <laughs> Just either a nice euphemism or Willard doesn't actually understand... <laughs> You know, about human biology. He thinks first base is the last base. I think he may, Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure, possibly. May not have a lot of experience. (laughs) Certainly as we see his relationship with, uh, what's her name? Oh, gosh, what is her Sarah Jessica Parker. Yes, her character. She has some weird, like, Lucky or something? I don't know. They all have names. They all have, they do all have names. Rusty. Rusty, Yes. (laughs) Willard does not seem to be a smooth operator, so... He is not. He doesn't dance, he fights. Yeah, I don't think Willard gets kissed a lot. He's a cowboy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so, I mean, our first sort of run-in with the oppressive regime is when Ren and Chris Penn are driving in Ren's little VW bug. Playing the music a little loud. A little loud with the rock music. Playing a little quiet riot or something, I think it was. (laughs) And so they get pulled over by the local police. Yes. Um, and that, you know, becomes a whole situation, surprisingly. Well, they're still white, so it's not that bad a situation. It is not. But, you know, as being who I am, anytime I see a cop pull yeah. somebody over, I'm just like, oh, this is okay. Especially with those nice mirrored shades. Yeah, those, you know, those, that's yeah. those very, like, again, you know, that's a sundown town look there. Like, they got the mirrored <laughs> shades going. It's a lot of brown. Um, but, yeah, so they get pulled over and the cops, you know... Force him to get out of the car and confiscate his cassette tape because it is apparently as bad as having, you know, weed in the car or something, Mm -hmm. which then took me to an interesting place in my mind. Uh Uh-oh. So I went and I read, for some reason, the Wikipedia entry for cassette tape. Okay. I don't know why. I just, these sort of, this project leaves me on weird research tangents. Heading down weird rabbit holes. Yes. And then I pictured a scene that may have been cut from this film. Okay. So I'm going to set the scene. Is this a scene you, you've written for this film? This is a scene I've written for this film. Okay. Based off of the Wikipedia entry for cassette tape. I have no idea where you're going with this, but I'm keen to find out. Interior. That's what they say, right? <laughs> when they're writing scenes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interior. Sure. Police briefing. Okay. <laughs> the Beaumont chief of police... Stands with his deputies behind a table piled high with cassette tapes. <laughs> he has a pencil and he's like, you know, holding one of the tapes aloft through the little through the spool. hole in the tape. Mm-hmm. Face very serious. And he says, Boys, we got a new menace in town. <laughs> the compact audio cassette, CAC, or music cassette, MC, also commonly called the cassette tape, or simply tape, or cassette, is an analog magnetic tape recording format for audio recording and playback. Released by Philips in 1963, it has been developed in Belgium. Belgium, fellas! <laughs> Compact cassettes come in two forms, either already containing content as a pre-recorded cassette or as a fully recordable blank cassette. Both forms are reversible by the user. This is our enemy, boys. Now get out there and clean up this town. End scene. Sheriff, Sheriff, have we trained the dogs to sniff these out? That's how ridiculous the idea of this is. <laughs> that now I read the Wikipedia entry of cassette tape and I'm like, oh, that sounds bad. It's from Belgium. That's Men, let's be careful out gotta there. Gotta be careful out there. Cassette tape's all over. Mm-hmm. Gotta get them off the streets. What's the street value of the cassettes that we confiscated today? Like 99 cents. <laughs> so, you know, it's serious. It's really serious. Time well spent for the Beaumont Police Department. I mean, 
What are you going to do? Beaumont tax dollars at work. What are you going to do? So, after that, and after, you know, the typical high school male macho bullshit of Ren's run-ins with toxic masculinity Chuck uh-huh. and just general displeasure with his new hometown, mm-hmm. we come to what you seem to think is, like, one of the pivotal scenes yes. of the film. Epic. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, in movie history, I think there's the chariot race in Ben-Hur. Sure. There is, uh, you know, the run on the Death Star at the end mm. of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there are just these epic scenes. And in Footloose, it's... The tractor race. The tractor race. Not even a race. No, a tra- playing a, chicken. Playing chicken. With tractors. With tractors. As one does. Yes. Because we're not in the city. You ain't in the city no more, boy. <laughs> We don't play chicken with cars. Well, they have cars. They do, but we don't. But we're we're not in the city no more. And later in the film, they all have motorcycles. Like suddenly, all yeah. the kids are on motorcycles for no reason. That is a good point. They did. Yeah. I don't know where they got the motorcycle. I That's a know. side note. Sorry. Don't know. <laughs> Let us talk about yet another the tra- question. The tractor duel. The tractor jousting. Yeah. So they steal tractors from someone's farm and uh toxic masculinity chuck and ren face off in a (laughs) head-to-head tractor battle uh and i the uh, the point is basically whoever you know flinches first Uh is the loser here's the thing tractors are cumbersome Tractors are slow. <laughs> they're, they're creeping they're, towards I mean, each the, other the, the, the sort at of, about 15 miles an hour, maybe. The tension really dissipates uh-huh. when you're just like, oh, we're still like 20 miles apart, really. This, I feel like there yeah. was just a more efficient way to you know, measure your dicks. Yeah. Like, we didn't really need to do this with tractors. And the kids are like cheering like this they is are... the most nail-biting, pulse-pounding event they have ever witnessed. And to help you feel what they're feeling... I need a hero is playing in the background. As if they were these were, you know, young men going off to war. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, no. These are two fucking idiots. Where have all the good men gone and where are all the gods? They are apparently As if riding to answer tractors. That question, They're here. Here they are. Riding tractors. Riding tractors at each in other. In the middle of fucking nowhere. <laughs> to prove absolutely in nothing. A weird rural homoerotic. Very duel. odd. Very odd. <laughs> So City Boy Ren gets his, like, shoelace caught in the gas or something, or the pedal of the tractor, so he, though he's trying to get off and jump off, because he is a pussy. Is a pussy. He can't because he's stuck. Yeah. And after, I don't know, 20 minutes of watching these tractors (laughs) come closer and closer to each other, Toxic Masculinity Chuck finally dives off his tractor Uh and loses. And everyone cheers Ren for what was basically a mistake. He did not mean to keep going. He just got stuck in the pedal. And And would not have been that impressive had it not been a mistake. Had it not been a mistake. It really is not an impressive thing at all. No. It really, it just, again, it's wasteful. And I really want to know who owns the tractors and who then has to go fish their tractor out of the ditch. Well, that's another point of a, I mean, these are, you know, farmers generally are not wealthy people. No. The tractor is the most expensive piece of equipment they own. To wreck a tractor could basically, you know, put a family out of. Farm business. Out of the farm business forever. (laughs) Family is going to be starving because they overturned a tra- couple of right. tractors for no reason. Well, for the reason of gods and heroes. Yes. Apparently. Uh, it it worked, however. After that, Ariel is done with, with toxic, toxic masculinity, masculinity Chuck. Chuck. Yeah. 
and she is all about Ren now. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't think <laughs> watching me win or lose a tractor fight would make you particularly. Here's the thing: as soon moist. as you would say, "I'm going for a tractor fight," I'd be like, "Okay, that was nice knowing you." <laughs> That's okay. Then that really tells me all I need to know about who you are. Mm-hmm. It's like people that go cow tipping. Like, what? Why are you doing that? Doesn't that say something about you as a person? I don't like to hear you disparage white culture. I I don't even. I just need to say what it is. <laughs> Like, I don't even have to make any judgment on it. I just, like, you went out and you tipped cows. Or you raced tractors. I just, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Um, yes, so th- this begins the sort of great, convenient romance between Ren and Ariel. <laughs> Where are we now? Okay, so, oh god, another just terrible scene. Um, there's just bullshit filler in there about, you know, we can't dance and we can't play music. Uh-huh. And Ariel and Ren sort of, I guess this is their courting period, blah, blah, blah. Everybody's um, coming down on Ren for being a troublemaker. Everybody's coming and... down on Ren for, you know, inciting people to dance. And, you know, bringing the preacher's kid to the bad side, though she was already on the bad side, even though they're trying to blame it on Ren. <laughs> uh, so what does one do when one is faced with such just... I mean, I I can't even think of another word other than a, this is a story of oppression. So when his face was when the pressure builds up, the pressure too builds much up too much. You're just straining against the bars of this prison to which you have been exiled. Prison of no dance. You do an angry expository dance <laughs> slash gymnastics routine <laughs> in an empty factory because you just got to get it out. And if you happen to come across. An empty factory that also has, weirdly, parallel bars. (laughs) Then you do some little flips, some little twirls, a little bit of extra to get that aggression out. Because, damn it, you're a rebel and you're good on the parallel bars. So that's what you do. Uh, Yeah. What was it? I don't even remember. What's the song there? Do we remember? That song is called Never Hide Your Heart. Oh, okay, sure. The the Stone Cold Classic. Yes. Never Hide Your Heart. Uh Uh-huh. Something about your heart needs wings to fly, etc. I, I have a question. Sure, down in front. It, it might seem it might seem tangential. I'm just wondering what town of 700 people has a gymnastics team mm. in their high school. Mm, that is an excellent question. He does do a fair amount of gymnastics in this movie. Yeah, and he gets he, he there is a gymnastics team. He gets kicked off That's the right. gymnastics team. That's right. Uh, you know, my my hometown was about twenty five hundred people. <laughs> we had a we had a football team and a basketball team. <laughs> That's what we had. We didn't have a fucking gymnastics team. Maybe they decided gymnastics was like the least sexy sport or something. <laughs> like basketball and football, and they were, that was too close to you know crazy sex and rock and roll. <laughs> too much physical. Too contact. much. So what you need is men in tights. <laughs> Flipping on bars, riding that little horse thing. What's it called? The horse bar? The, the pommel. Yes, the, the pommel horse. Whatever. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's what you need because that is not sexy <laughs> or homoerotic in any way. Okay. Um. So, yes, that is sort of one of maybe three or four sort of dancey montages, MTV style music right. video moments in the movie. I also wanted to point out about that, as he is, you know, getting his his feelings out in right. his... Expository dance slash gymnastics routine. gymnastics slash dance routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, angry dancing. Don't dance angry. Don't dance angry. We are also getting, and this is... I need to. I know you forget everything we talk about from one week to the next, and you forget the movies we watch. Yes. I want to cast your mind back to 
Rocky Four. I don't want to go there. Which came out about a year after this movie came out. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this is an 80s thing that I've just forgotten about. So in Ren's angry dance routine, we get flashbacks. Yes. Two things that happened literally the last scene. two minutes yeah. earlier <laughs> in the movie. Yep. Yeah. We get these music video flashbacks. Yeah. And that is something we saw in Rocky Four it as is. well. Yes. It is. So. Because that's, I mean, that's how you do an angry expository dance routine slash gymnastics routine slash, in the case of Rocky, training (laughs) uh, montage. Because you have to know, why are they angry dancing or angry fighting? Oh, because this thing that happened two minutes ago. (laughs) The audience can't possibly remember unless we show it to them again. There's no, you know, text here. So we got to bring it back visually. (laughs) Thought bubble picture of something that happened just two seconds ago um so that you can sort of remember why he's punching his way through a fucking empty factory <laughs> and calling it dance i also watching it there were i gotta be honest there were moments i had the suspicion that might not have been kevin bacon no, that was clearly a double <laughs> like obscenely so totally different per- it was like some tall swedish gentleman or something <laughs> absolutely different person Flipping and flopping their way through that factory. <laughs> I actually, I actually did look this up. He, he had several body double dance, double gymnastic doubles <laughs> in this movie. But the guy that did most of the angry gymnastic dancing, uh, I didn't get his name, but I know he was actually married to the person who did all the uncredited body doubling of. Jennifer Beals in Flashdance, wow. which came out, you know, about a year before this movie That's came out. That's a perfect marriage. And is sort of the spiritual twin to Footloose. <laughs> Footloose and Flashdance are sort of... Flashdance is better. <laughs> it just is. <laughs> Nothing else that gave you the, you know, the taking off the bra move. I mean, you can't, like, that's just classic. That, that power couple is sort of the that's, secret heart wow. of 80s music video movies. Yeah, how can we never hear about those jobs on career day? Nobody told me that I could be a body double for an angry dance routine slash gymnastics routine. I would have I would have liked to have gone out for that. At least give me a shot. Let me try. Let me be Kevin Bacon in the factory. You think that's what it says on his business cards? Yes. <laughs> LinkedIn. Angry <laughs> expository dance slash gymnastics routine from Footloose. Mm-hmm. That was me. Parallel bars. Nailed it. Okay, so at the end of that routine, uh, Ariel comes in. That's when yes, they start really doing this yeah. weird sort of non... They actually don't hook up for, like... Do they hook up anywhere in the movie, actually? They eventually end up kissing, I think. He's being very like, prissy if, about this he, whole... Well, because he says the whole thing is like, I hear that you get kissed a lot. So uh-huh. he's being a little bit slut-shamey and judgy. I... Victor I mean, from she's, Chicago. She's basically, like, throwing herself at him, yeah. and he's being very standoffish. He's playing hard to get. So either he is sensing that this girl has some issues, which, to be fair, she, she does. does. She has some serious issues. Or maybe his real interest was in Willard. That's what, I'm, that's what, what I was wondering Willard's as I was watching this film. super cute, though. He's adorable. He really is. Even in the cowboy hat. He's very cute. I think there may be even more repression happening here than the film acknowledges. <laughs> See, my read on it was that he was being judgmental of her. He said something like, oh, I just, I hear you get kissed a lot. <laughs> Boys like to pretend that they don't want to be with a girl that's been kissed a lot, but that's, that's who you want to be mm-hmm. with. But then you want to be able to shit talk her and judge her, even though you're participating in it too. So. I don't know. I think I... I mean, it would be a more interesting movie if it was about he, he and Willard. And the the teaching Willard to dance montage was terrible. Was way more romantic than anything that happens between Kevin Bacon and Laurie Singer. It wasn't film. romantic though, because Willard has no. <laughs> 
<laughs> no rhythm whatsoever. That was that was the one to your favorite song. That was uh, let's, let's hear, hear it, it for the boys. For the boys. Yes, not a good song. I'm sorry to say, it really is not a good song. But yeah, we get the montage of Ren teaching Willard how to snap his fingers on the beats and how to sort of move his feet to the beat, and it never quite gets there. That two and four is really difficult for him. That's, I mean, it's difficult for all white people. We just <laughs> insist on snapping on one and, one and three. You can learn it, though. There's this great uh, video of Harry Connick Jr. teaching his audience how to get onto the two and four. Like, he starts playing, and they start clapping on the wrong fucking beat. So he changes the way that he plays to teach white people, like, no, bitch, you are not going to clap on the one and the three. We're going to get you to the two and the four. It can be done. It may take Harry Connick Jr. to do it, mm. but it can be done. You can be taught to the for, to get to the two and the four. But Chris Penn never gets there. No. He just doesn't make it. Um, I, I kind of wanted to see a montage of someone teaching Chris Penn how to close his mouth. He does have a little bit of a slack jaw yokel vibe. Um, but again, he really is like... The most uh, endearing character <laughs> in the movie. So maybe it should have been about him. Uh, where are we? Oh, uh, the toxic masculinity Chuck finds out that Ariel has been dating Ren. If we can call that dating. If we but call okay. it dating. Hanging out with Ren. Yeah. That obviously hits him in the ego. And he then beats the shit out of her. Oh, yeah. He does do that, doesn't yes. he? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a, for me, was a very abrupt tone shift in that I was not expecting that at all. I mean, I knew he was toxic masculinity Chuck, but I wasn't expecting there to be a full-on domestic violence scene in the middle of Footloose. And nobody seemed to have that big of a problem with that. No. So immediately following that, she goes to see Ren, and her face is all fucked up, Mm -hmm. and he's just talking to her normally as though she hasn't just been beaten. And so then it's like, well, you're a shitty person. Yeah, there's no suggestion of, like, okay, I'm gonna go... No, there's no anger. There's not even any really, like... We're not gonna call the police. We're not... Consoling of her, really. (laughs) He's like, oh, you don't look that bad. (laughs) So that then takes me to this whole idea of Ren's crusade to save dance or to bring dance to the town of Beaumont is a little bit misguided because there are other things that he could maybe be fighting for. Yeah. Domestic violence awareness. <laughs> Tractor safety. Tractor safety. Farm equipment safety. Labor rights. Teacher got fired for teaching the wrong book. Uh-huh. Book burning. Let's yeah. talk about that. And censorship. I don't know. Bring a Planned Parenthood to Beaumont because girls get, quote-unquote, kissed a lot. Like, there are other things that you could be galvanizing a town around, but no, no. Well, this kind of comes back to my point about how they they created this sort of discreet reason why dancing was not allowed. Instead of dealing with the fact that what we're looking at here is a couple hundred years of just repression. Right. And people being afraid that their children were going to have sex mm-hmm. and women's rights and like this whole and right. it would be racism if there was anybody if there was anybody in the town against, right? that was not Lily White. There right. was not a single person of color in this town. Right. But like, yeah, instead of dealing with this is just fucked up, which would then make this movie play less well, probably in the places like Beaumont. Exactly. We kind of make this discreet, convenient Mm -hmm. excuse for why they don't allow dancing. uh, Yeah, and I mean, if there was some sort of contextualization around it. So this is, what, 84? Yeah. So this is Reagan era. Yeah. This is, you know, drugs running rampant through communities. Granted, they were largely communities of color, though there was a lot of cocaine going on elsewhere. (laughs) 
um, and the AIDS crisis, yeah. right? So, like, there is absolutely this sort of this sort of fear of an outside menace that was going to somehow, you know, corrupt your pure children. It came from a real place. Their response to it was irrational. But, you know, then it, it's, not, it's not about, oh, rock and roll leads to sex, so we're cutting out rock and roll. It could be about, this is, you know, 1984, and this, 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 this are happening in towns all over the country. Mm-hmm. We don't want that in our homes and we don't want that to poison our pretty little white children so we're shutting the shit down like that may have been a more interesting story right but that would have required them to get into actual issues right that is not where this movie was going (laughs) right exactly so yeah i've rewritten this movie like three times in my head um were any of them a musical comedy version of the grapes of wrath your version no it was no just because i don't know that i'm creative enough to do that like that takes a genius and i would absolutely watch it but i i don't have the chops um where are we now oh okay so we come to the sort of big standoff between ren and the moral majority uh yes. there is a uh like town hall meeting of some sort about the fact that the kids want to have a dance. Yes. They want to be able to jam on to the rock and roll. And Ren comes armed with his Bible. Mm-hmm. Yes, Ariel has picked some select Bible quotes yes. for him. And so in the war against oppressive theocracy, we bring a Bible because that's what you do. And he spouts some scriptures about people dancing for the Lord. And in the name of the Lord and praise of the Lord, and you see the little light bulb go off above the head of Reverend Shaw, and maybe, just maybe, these kids might get it done. So, John Lithgow, Reverend Shaw, John Lithgow, his character is interesting. One, John Lithgow is great because he's John Lithgow, and he's great. He is great, and Diane Weist as his wife is also great. And she also has, like, two lines, but she kills him. (laughs) But, um, so Lithgow is great, but I just... The sort of transition from this sort of coal pit firebrand to becoming, you know, an understanding, tolerant father is a little abrupt. You know, so we first meet him. He's warning his parishioners of the dangers of rock and roll and sort of easy sexuality and relaxed morality. Pornographic music. Pornographic music. music. Um, You know, when Ariel gets a little too sassy in the mouth, he slaps her in the face. Yeah. And then when she, um, she there's a point towards the end of the film where she runs into the church and starts yelling to the rafters that she's not a virgin anymore. <laughs> He's like violently shaking her as though he could, you know, put her hymen back in place. And then... The, I've been kissed a lot, Daddy. <laughs> And then in the immediate next, the next scene, he's running to the book burning to stop the people from, from burning books because he says something like, Satan's not in the books, he's in your hearts, and who elected you to stand in judgment? Yeah, it's like, right. that's the exact message that you had been sending for the <laughs> right. past five years. So they were just sort of carrying out the right. next stage of this <laughs> sort of oppressive regime. And the film doesn't deal with any of that. It doesn't. It doesn't. So we get this clip of Ren coming to speak to uh, Reverend Shaw. And they've obviously had some really profound conversation because Ren gets up and Reverend Shaw is just like, oh, yes, I totally changed my mind. Yeah, that's a weird missing scene. in Like there's no there's nothing. They we get no piece of that conversation. Ren says something about like, now, you know, something about this. Right. So we have no idea (laughs) what he said to convince Reverend Shaw or to sort of, you know, at least make him more open to the idea. But he just changes his mind. He's like, okay, the kids can have the dance. Yeah. And we miss all of that. So there, it's just a weird sort of character So do you, do you think there actually was a more serious movie on the cutting room floor and somebody just decided, okay, we're just going to 
make this a music video. Right. I mean, maybe. Movie. I mean, there's there is an argument that you know the movie could have been from John Lithgow's perspective, and it could have been about a man who realized that his sort of tactics weren't working. That he tried to lead a town through the ways of the Lord, and he realized that that wasn't working. Mm-hmm. He was losing his daughter. He was losing his wife. He had already lost his son. So, you know, having this sort of come to Jesus moment yeah. could have been interesting. He doesn't, though. But the he doesn't. Town, what I'm saying is that would have been an interesting movie. The town doesn't even change the law. No. The dance, they hold the dance over the city limits. Sort of lim- city line. line, yeah. Right. The right. line for the city limits. So they kind of just skirt that whole issue right. completely. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's a victory of sorts. <laughs> I mean, <Sure. laughs> they get to hold their dance. It isn't technically held in Beaumont, but the kids get to dance. But so the big dance scene, the moment that this entire film has sort of been leading up to, is one of the most disappointing climaxes <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. What, what did you want? I wanted an actual dance. Like, people really working it. doing the, Like, these people cannot dance. We get there, and Chris Penn is basically just jumping up and down as though on a pogo stick, and I'm supposed to believe that he's, like, really busting a move right now? And then some kid gets down there and does a really sad little breakdancing routine that just is, it's just sad. Funky robot Yeah, kind like, of it's thing. just, you yeah. know, just, you are not electric boogaloo, sir. Just not working. Um, so, it was just... But what about Kevin Bacon's dancing? Also, not a great dancer, actually. So, it's just, it's like, well... Maybe you guys shouldn't have music or dance because you don't do it right. So I liked no part of this movie. It just wasn't good. Except the music. The music was not... I do not like <laughs> Kenny Loggins. I do not like I Need a Hero. I do not like uh, Let's Hear It for the Boys. So I couldn't even just sort of close my eyes and be like, okay, I'm just going to listen to the music <laughs> and imagine other people engaging with it. No, there, there was nothing for me to connect with here at all. And it was. it's also just like, I don't know. It just wasn't really my childhood. And not even from, like, city versus country mouse sort of thing. I It was just, you know. So in 1985, Parents Music Resource Center put together, like, a list of, like, 15 songs that they considered to have inappropriate content. Was this Tipper Gore's group? This was Tipper Gore's yeah. group. And I one of the that. songs on that list is one of my all-time favorites, which is Darling Nikki by Prince. Um, and the reason it was because the song is about masturbation. And they sort right. of just realized that it was about masturbation. So, of course, it was evil. <laughs> and so from that, you get... Uh, the parental advisory label that they put on music now to quote unquote warn parents of albums mm. that you know contain explicit content, whatever they consider to be explicit content. But like, I had the Nas album, I had Rough Riders, I had Little Kim, you know, Janet Jackson's Velvet Rope, where one track is her basically just masturbating on the record. And my mom would buy them, and they would have that little label on them, and she just felt okay here, right? Because like. And I, so it's always just confused, like, this idea that music corrupts in some way, I mm-hmm. think is just ridiculous. Like, growing up when I was really little, my grandma listened to, you know, Millie Jackson, and that's a raunchy bitch, and, you know, <laughs> Bobby Blue Bland, and all, like, and I was there listening to it with her, and there was no sort of, the thought that I would somehow be altered by it right. was just not even, you know, a discussion. Well, I didn't grow up like, I mean, my we had no censorship of yeah. any kind. I was watching movies and reading books mm-hmm. and everything that I should not have been reading when I was a kid, which was great. Right. But I did know kids, our, like our next door neighbors were hardcore Baptists, and they kind of grew up like the kids in this movie. Mm-hmm. 
in that they were not allowed to listen to rock and roll. They were not allowed to do anything with members of the opposite sex at any point. Um, You know, there was a a whole list of forbidden things like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons (laughs) and, you know, obviously alcohol or anything like that. And we would... Like, I was friends with one of these kids, and we would, like, drive around town, and we'd be listening to the radio, and if he saw someone from his church, he'd lean over and turn the radio off really quick. He'd say, Bible cops, and turn the radio (laughs) off, because if he got caught, if people heard him driving around town with the radio blasting, he would get in trouble for that. And these kids were kind of fucked up, (laughs) and they sort of rebelled in not healthy ways and this kid ran off and joined the army as soon as he was physically able to do it and it was just yeah it's not a good not not a good good environment i don't think it's a good so if if this movie had been about that right i might have liked this movie better because i do think a large swath of america is like this yeah and it's a problem well but here it's kind of cutesy and romanticized and But it's like, you know, the sort of dirty underbelly of that is, you know, Columbine happens and we spend all our time talking about Marilyn Manson. And it's like, that is not the conversation. Right. You know, Marilyn Manson did not make murderers of these children. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. So that would have maybe been, it absolutely would have been a totally different movie and probably would not be the smash hit that it is. (laughs) And the movie also doesn't really address even even the things that it thinks it's talking about. Like, Mm -hmm. Ren's little speech to the town council about Ecclesiastes and all of that does not address their real concerns which is that their children are going to fuck. (laughs) That is what it's about. And that kind of goes undiscussed. Mm -hmm. That's why they need a Planned Parenthood in the town. (laughs) They They need some honest sexual education. (laughs) Yeah, your kids are probably going to have sex. They should be protected when they do it. End of discussion. (laughs) Really and don't fuck toxic masculinity, Chuck. That's really all you need to say. I mean, it did occur to me that this film is basically the, you know, gender-swapped version of Dirty Dancing with one fewer abortion. But see, but that's a good thing. The, good thing. The... <laughs> but that's sort of what I respect about Dirty Dancing because it was, it did show that sort of, it was a, a bit grimier. It was like, it was moralistic in the way that they treated Penny. Like, that just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That poor girl. Um, and they, they had to put her in the worst situation, which she gets knocked up and the guy doesn't care. And so she has to have this terrible, horrible abortion. Maybe I just like the music more on Dirty Dancing. <laughs> and Patrick Swayze. And the dancing's better. Just, yes, Dirty Dancing is a superior movie. <laughs> okay. I, I can't argue with that, actually. I mean, you really can't. The no. dancing is better. The music is better. The music is much better. So much better. Patrick Swayze is definitely better than Kevin Bacon. Oh, so let's circle back to that. Where do we come down on the, is Kevin Bacon fuckable? I did not find him fuckable in this okay. movie. No. no. I don't think he's unattractive, but he didn't really do anything for me. He was kind of, he had a friend. They had like this big, beefy tree looking dude that was hanging out with them all the time. Oh, yes. that I believe his name was Woody. Nice. Yes. So much better. That gentleman, absolutely, I would climb his ass. He was fantastic. But, like... He didn't, he didn't have a big part, he, didn't, he really didn't, but every time he was in the scene, particularly with Kevin Bacon, he made Kevin Bacon look like a little rat. Because he was like a tree of a man. And I was like, oh, my God. Hi. 
You know, those, like, really uh-huh. sturdy, corn-fed white boys that, like, just look like they can, like, pick up a tree out of the floor or out of the yeah, forest. I, I didn't know that was your thing. It okay. really it, it is a very specific thing. Like, you have to hit sort of all the right notes. And it's probably better that he didn't talk much because then I couldn't figure out that he was terrible. But he generally sort of stood for right in the film. Like, he didn't let people beat up Kevin Bacon and try to, you know, keep the peace. But, yeah, so he was cute, but I have no feelings for Kevin Bacon whatsoever. Okay, so this is one of your favorite questions about movies. I'm going to ask you about this one. Okay. Leave everything else in this movie the same. Make Ren black. What happens to this movie? It's a better fucking movie! Because (laughs) (laughs) it would be better music and actual dancing. You know what people were dancing to in high school when I was in, like, junior high? They were doing, like, the percolator and shit. Like, that was some fucking intricate-ass dancing that took rhythm. And it, it like, no, you can't... The lame-ass dancing in here is just unforgivable. For this to be a, a film about, you know, the power of dance, those are some non-dancing-ass people. <laughs> so you make that a black person. If the rest of the town is white... I mean, that movie doesn't get made because when the police pull him over, he would be in jail. Right. So there would really be no movie. Uh, and, God, and Jesus, if he tried to date the preacher's daughter, like, I mean, that's just a whole... Isn't that a, a much more interesting movie It would movie be a already, much though? more interesting movie. <laughs> I would be very concerned for his life the whole time. Um, and they would definitely run him out of town. Uh, but yeah, it's just in, in many, many ways, it would be a much more interesting, better movie. Yes, absolutely. Did you like any part of this movie? Insert cricket noise here. <laughs> um, so the angry dance, the angry expository dance slash gymnastics routine mm. in the factory mm. reminded me that I had not seen Janet Jackson's Pleasure Principle video in a really long time. So yeah, I need to me go neither. And, so I need to go and watch that because it's an awesome ass video. If you want to dance in a factory, then that's how you fucking dance in a factory. <laughs> um, did I like anything else? Like I said, you know, Chris Penn was good. John Lithgow was good, even though the character sort of didn't make a lot of sense. Diane Weiss was good with her. Diane Weiss is great, and she is a weirdly missing character yeah. for most of the... she's pretty like, invisible. The daughter would come it. home and talk to the father, and, like, the mother... I kept forgetting, like, that the mother wasn't dead. You right. know, in a lot of these movies, the mother is dead. Right. It's like, oh, no, the mother's Diane Weiss. We saw her earlier. Where is she? Just sitting quietly. She just go to bed early? Yeah. What does she do? I don't know. She was not present for a lot of it, and then towards the end, she finally gets a moment to say, you know to tell the good Reverend Shaw that he's fucking up. Um, And then (laughs) exits, stage left. So, yeah. But other than that, no, it was terrible. I don't even understand any sort of nostalgia for this movie. Like, it's it's bad. There are better 80s movies. This is bad. Oh, so I should tell you that the the actual Elmore City, Oklahoma, the real place that we were discussing earlier, Mm -hmm. now, of course, has a Footloose Festival every year. Where everyone comes together and dances badly to bad music? One would assume, yes. That is what happens at the Footloose Festival every year. So they have embraced their cultural legacy Mm -hmm. as... A no-dancing-ass town? The Footloose capital of the world. How nice for them. Maybe we should go one year. Uh, I, I I don't see you enjoying that very much. <laughs> Should we ever find ourselves in Oklahoma? <laughs> if, if we are ever in Oklahoma, it's going to be because we found ourselves in Oklahoma. <laughs> like, we woke up in Oklahoma and, like, how the hell did we get under any other circumstances? Yeah, no. We're, we're going to go around that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a Black Mirror episode waiting to happen. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. 
Nikia, I usually don't do two films from the same year back to back. Mm -hmm. I like to mix it up more than that. Mm -hmm. But I think, considering the fact that Footloose did not go over very well, I want to show <laughs> you what else 1984 has to offer you. Okay. So next week, we're going to watch The Terminator. I don't want to do that one either. I feel like I've seen I've seen one of them, right? Yeah, no, we've we've had this conversation a lot. You say I've seen the Terminator. Right. And then I ask you to describe any scene from the Terminator. Right. And you describe a scene from Terminator 2. The one with Samuel L. Jackson. Not Samuel L. Jackson. Who's the black doctor? There's a black doctor. So racist. It's super racist. There's a black doctor. <laughs> I haven't seen it in a really long time. I think it's uh it's Joe Morton. Joe Morton. It? Okay, that's yeah. the one I saw. Uh -huh. Yeah, and the guy with the silver who turns into right. things and yes. that's all Terminator 2. You have never seen the Terminator. Do I need to see it though since I've seen Terminator? Well, obviously. I mean, I get the gist. What's the gist? Uh, Borgs of some kind <laughs> come back to change the future and the boy is special for some reason. Okay. And the mom is strong. Okay. <laughs> Why did I think it was so, Samuel L. Jackson? I don't know. Okay. So I think we'll watch The Terminator next week. Okay. <laughs> if we must. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at freerangecritic. Send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a movie Nakia needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. I need a hero. It's me. No. <laughs> it isn't. So how would you remake this movie? Ooh, this is what you do. You somehow do a mashup of Footloose and Tu Wong Fu. There you go. Because in that one, you had these three drag queens come to this small town and whoop the dude's ass who was beating on his wife and basically run him out of town and then teach the other women to like really embrace themselves and love themselves and it was all self-care and you're awesome and you like that's what you do. You bring some ass drag queens <laughs> into the town. Maybe Reverend Shaw would have discovered some things about himself Maybe. in that situation. Maybe. Make him a much more interesting character. <laughs> Lithgow had already played a transgender woman in uh, World According to Garp. A couple oh, that's years on earlier. my list, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, again, Patrick Swayze. Okay. So maybe Patrick Swayze <laughs> is my answer. Like you... To how to fix every 80s movie. How to movie. fix every 80s movie. Bring in Patrick Swayze. Be it in a dress or in his, you know, James Dean drag, whatever you need. And he will fix it. He will make it better. Because that's what Tuwafu was. They went to, they found themselves in this really small town, repressive town. It wasn't like no dancing and no music, but, you know, it was this sort of dust bowl place. And they end up staying with this couple and the husband is beating on the wife. And so Patrick Swayze, one night, gets sick of, you know, seeing the wife all beat up. And he goes up to the room and he said, okay, you want to hit somebody? You're going to hit me. And big ass Patrick Swayze <laughs> in his fucking finery whoops that dude's ass. <laughs> So that's how you fix this movie. Paul Abdul or Patrick Swayze and Wesley Snipes and John Leguizamo in drag to teach the community how to love and how to, you know, gender fuck. <laughs>